Welcome back to Foster Adopts Minnesota's Let's Talk, a podcast that brings you valuable resources for prospective and current adoptive and foster families as well as professionals. My name is Sunny and I am an education coordinator here at Foster Adopt Minnesota. And I'm Chris, also an education coordinator here at FAM. So today we are chatting with Karen Poitras from the Radish Ranch in Manitoba about how to support RAD families during the holidays. Karen has worked with more than 250 children with RAD and their families since 2012. Karen's approach to healing from trauma is centered on family, connection, and brain healing. She works directly with parents to provide them with tips, tools, and techniques to empower them to connect with their child, facilitating healing, recovery, and happiness. Karen, thank you so much for being with us today. Welcome. Thank you. I'm very excited to be here with you. Yeah, we're excited to have you. So let's get started. For those listeners who do not know what RAD is, please give us a definition. Uh, So basically, in a nutshell, it's kids who in the first few years of life experienced really severe trauma or abuse and who didn't have a caregiver to connect with. So there's not only the, the, the experiences they did have, the trauma and abuse and neglect, but also the lack of having someone who loved them and was there to take care of them and keep them safe. Uh, so because of that, the, their early experiences, they don't have a connection to anybody at all. Um, so they they don't have a relationship with a primary caregiver which means they have a lot of chaotic crazy negative behaviors that are based in survival mode so all of the crazy behaviors you hear from kids with reactive attachment disorder stem from their need for survival they don't believe they have an adult who they can connect with who's going to take care of them And so they feel like they are the only person in charge of their own survival. So they have a lot of chaotic behaviors because of that. And then also because the trauma and neglect they've experienced affects brain development. So they often function developmentally at a much uh, lower level than kids of the same chronological age. So in a nutshell, that's reactive attachment disorder. It's a pretty big nutshell. (laughs) Yeah. So tell us a little bit about yourself, like how you became interested in RAD and the sort of work you've done with the RAD community. Yeah, so I started in, and I'm terrible with dates, and I was like, oh, I should write these down before the podcast, but I didn't because I forgot. (laughs) Uh, But I think it was 2011 or 2012, um, friends of mine got me into this. Their son was 12 at that point, and they took him to a family bonding camp and finally found a diagnosis for him, which was reactive attachment disorder, on top of FAS and some other stuff for him. And they started using therapeutic parenting. And so prior to them finding out the diagnosis and the parenting that worked, Uh, So things were really challenging for their family um, in those first few years. Completely destroy their home and their family. He had all of the really severe behaviors. Their house was always destroyed. There were holes in the walls. He was screaming and fighting about something constantly. Um, Peed everywhere on everything. Fought with everybody at school. Was um, 
sent home from school like two or three times a week for behaviors. And, you know, at first you think, well, maybe they're just not great parents, right? Um, but they had three birth kids after him who were perfectly healthy and happy and, you know, traumatized by their sibling. And so watching that, I started to realize, okay, it's not the parents. They obviously are not the problem going on. And this kid had been in foster care the first few years of his life and extreme abuse, extreme neglect. Um, he was bounced around the foster care system in those couple of years. And so when their family went to this camp and they came back, I could see such a difference in the way the parents felt and the way the parents were parenting. So not a whole lot of difference in the child's behaviors because he decided he didn't want to put any effort in at that point. But the parents came back empowered. They knew how to help their child. They knew why he was acting the way he was. They knew therapeutic responses to deal with his behaviors. And so for a couple of years, I watched them become this really relaxed, fun, engaging family. And this child still had behaviors, but they knew how to handle it. And so I watched and I was like, this is something really special. There's something really amazing about what's going on. So uh, I think it was two years after that, they went back to the same camp to volunteer, the parents did. And they told me they had booked a ticket for me to go with them. And this was going to Florida in March. And when you're from Canada, you will go anywhere warm <laughs> in the middle of winter. <laughs> so I said, sure, I would go. I didn't really know what was happening. Um, so I spent a week at this camp watching these families and learning from these really great professionals all about reactive attachment disorder and trauma and healing and therapeutic parenting. And it made so much sense to me. And before all of that, I had taught in a private school for a couple of years. So I was used to working with kids and kids with some pretty extreme behaviors. And this just made so much sense. So I got home from that first camp and did all of the research, studying, reading, everything I could find on this. And then I've just kept doing it since then. I haven't stopped. Um, so 2014, I started doing therapeutic respite care full time, mostly going and working in families' homes with them, which is really great uh, experience and helps to fit things to families' actual needs and what's going to help them. Uh, and then 2016, I founded the Radish Ranch because it's really hard to find resources in Canada. So we need some more up here. And then also originally our goal was to have a place where we could host camps up here. We could have families come and stay. We could do trainings and all of that stuff. Um, and then COVID happened and now housing prices are through the roof in Canada. So that piece of it is on hold. Uh, so right now we're doing a lot of online trainings. We have a parenting course we run a couple times a year, um, respite provider trainings. We have one coming up, an in-person one, which is very exciting to do. Um, and then consultations and resources and newsletters and all of that stuff to help families. Good. It sounds like everything's evolving with you too, with Rad the More yeah. You Learn. And yeah. Um, what are some common misconceptions about RAD? Oh, there's two. Whenever anyone asks me that, there's two things that come to mind. One of them is that there's still the misconception how rare reactive attachment disorder is. 
And I think if you look in the general population in North America, it's rare statistically. But when you look at adoptive and foster families, it's a lot more common than people think. Because all of those kids, no matter what other experiences they've had, they've all lost a primary caregiver, which is one of the risk factors for reactive attachment disorder. And then the other misconception that I get that is the other end of the spectrum is that there's a belief that reactive attachment disorder is a lifelong disability. And while trauma impacts someone for the rest of their life, they always have those experiences and the, the things that came about from those experiences. They can form healthy, loving relationships with their parents and with other people. So I've had the privilege of working with Oh, I don't even, I've lost count of how many at this point, but working with kids who have healed and we call them healthy, healed people because they no longer have um, the need to be in that survival mode. They no longer have the need to push away their caregivers and they have really great loving relationships with people. So those are kind of the two main misconceptions that I generally get. Can you tell us about how long it takes to turn it around because your message is very hopeful. And that's, that's probably what somebody listening to this, that's right in the middle of it, right in the thick of it needs to hear that there is hope, but can you yeah. give maybe an average time frame for that? There is no average. Okay. <laughs> There's no time frame with trauma. Um, there are so many factors that impact that healing process. So some of it is, the severity of the trauma the child's experienced, how soon they were able to get resources and help, uh, how traumatized the adoptive family is by this child after years and years of child to parent abuse. Um, and then there's factors like, you know, if parents have a great psychiatrist and available medications, and if they have respite care, and if they have a really great attachment therapist, and if they have support for their family, all of those pieces um, play in. Unfortunately, a lot of our families don't have those things that they need. Um, so the majority of the kids that I've worked with who are now considered healthy and healed from reactive attachment disorder, I would say they all healed in their teens. So I've worked with a few who did when they were younger, and that was when you know parents started therapeutic parenting when the kids were two or three, they started really young on that healing process. Uh, but a lot of the times it's been when they're a bit older and these kids make the really intentional decision to start changing, to start working on their life, um, you know, dealing with their trauma that they've experienced and making that intentional decision to let their parents love come in and to start feeling that from them. So no time frames, unfortunately. <laughs> Okay. Have you seen yeah. it sooner and later? I mean, mostly in your teens, you said, but have you seen yeah. it before that? I have sometimes. Yeah. A lot of the times too, we end up with when kids are, I would say below 12, 12 and under, a lot of professionals still go through the whole round of different diagnoses. So, okay, your child has oppositional defiance disorder, they have autism, they have ADHD, they have OCD, they go through everything. And so by the time people realize those diagnoses don't fit, our kids are often older in age by the time they get through all of the different things. 
Um, so I have seen kids at younger ages decide to make those choices, but it's often those older kids. And teenagers is like 13, 14, you know, 15, 16, so not necessarily um, at the older age or range of teenagers. Okay. Good to know. Thank you. Yeah. And Karen, we're recording our podcast today just on the brink of the holiday season. So lots yeah. of holidays are coming up around the corner <laughs> to the season. Yep. Um, how can family and friends support a rad family during the holidays? Yeah, this is a question I get a lot. And um, American Thanksgiving seems to be a really big thing for a lot of people. <laughs> Thanksgiving in Canada is like, maybe you see your family and have turkey for supper, but not a big deal. You get a day off, but you know, that's about it. Don't you have Boxing Day in there too? <laughs> we have Boxing Day, yeah, the day after go. Christmas. That's a big holiday here, but yeah. <laughs> um, so I think Thanksgiving kind of sets off that holiday um, season in the U.S. Um, so as far as family and friends supporting families with kids with RAD during the holidays, one of the most important things or two of the most important things, I guess, one is understanding that even if you don't understand reactive attachment disorder or trauma or attachment issues or therapeutic parenting or anything, family and friends need to understand that this family is doing the best thing they can to help their kids. Um, and then the second thing I always tell family and friends to support a family is do not give parenting advice. Because <laughs> parenting advice, typically attached kids, doesn't work for our kids with reactive attachment disorder. And so even if it's other people trying to be helpful, it comes across as really unsupportive um, for our families. So those are kind of the two main things I like to tell people. And then other than that, it's doing your best to include the family as much as possible to make them feel welcomed. Uh, sometimes that means changing schedules a little bit so that this family can come and participate, but then also be able to take their kids home for an on-time bedtime because schedules and predictability are so important in therapeutic parenting. Um, and then to make the family feel welcomed. I know I've worked with a lot of families where they say they didn't get invited to family functions. They said, we know we can't go. We know we're not going to be able to make it, but we don't get invited. And it's really hard for people when they feel that exclusion. So I always tell people, invite them. Even if you know 100% they're not going to come, invite them. Let them know you're thinking about them. You're going to miss having them with you. And that bit of inclusion can really help parents to deal with the, the hardship of missing out on holidays. And then bring people food. That is the best <laughs> thing you can do. Um, everyone loves turkey dinners, even if you don't necessarily, you know, here, like I said, Thanksgiving is not a big holiday, but everyone loves turkey dinner because it's like a time of family and togetherness and celebration. Um, so even if you know a family's not going to make it, bringing them some food, dropping off pumpkin pie or Christmas cookies or holiday desserts, again, helps that family feel included and thought of and helps with some of that, um, the feeling of missing out that they get around the holiday seasons. Great. Those are great words of advice. Yeah. Well, I like the food 
part. <laughs> Food is for sharing. That's my love. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I have a neighbor. I live in a tiny little town and everybody is retired except me. They're all like over the age of 70. <laughs> Uh, so every Thanksgiving and every Christmas, they all bring me meals and they bring over Christmas cookies. And the times when I can't make it home to be with my family who lives far away, it gives you that feeling of inclusion and that people care about you and you're accepted, even if you're not, you know, in the situation you necessarily want to be in. Great, great advice. What can parents do to minimize meltdowns during the holidays? So one of the biggest reasons uh, for meltdowns during the holidays when there's a lot of um, chaos and different schedules and time off from school and all that stuff. One of the biggest things is that our kids don't have the sense of felt safety, which is the feeling of being safe with the people around you and in your environment. Uh, our kids already really struggle with feeling felt safety with their own family in their own home. And so when you add in lots of other people and lots of other places, you know, whether it's visiting family and friends or holidays, uh, shopping or traveling, our kids feel really unsafe, which means they have really high levels of anxiety and they act out more to counteract those feelings of unsafety. So if parents can focus on providing as much felt safety as possible, they're able to, um, calm down some of those behaviors and stop some of those triggers from happening. So a few things uh, to do felt safety. One of them was we call it the six foot rule and it's having your child within six feet of you at all times. Because um, a lot of times, you know, we're out with family and friends. And we're like, we're at the grandparents house. We know it's safe. No one's going to hurt our child. The environment is safe. So we let them out of our sight. But what happens is our kids don't feel safe because they don't know deep inside that this is a safe place and no one's going to hurt them. So keeping kids within six feet of their parents helps to provide them with that felt safety. So have them sit beside you, have them close by. And then our kids feel if anything happens, my mom is right here. She's going to protect me. My dad is right here. He's going to keep me safe. So that is one thing that can really minimize uh, some of those behaviors. And then another one, sometimes our kids just feel really unsure about what's going on. They have a lot of anxiety. So bringing an activity for them from home can help them to have something to focus on. Uh, I like to pack stuff for kids like my kids always have like a, a knitting loom project or a sewing project or a, a something creating something project they're working on. And when that can be brought from home to this place, whether it's the shopping mall or the grandparents' place, or sometimes, you know, a church gathering, it gives not only our kids something to focus on, but something they're familiar with. So in this really unfamiliar, unpredictable place, they have something that they know how to do. So it gives that confidence for them. Um, and then calmness breaks are really great. Even if it looks like our child is handling things really well, Inside, they're not, and there's a lot of anxiety and chaos building up. So I always recommend every 30 minutes, parents take their child on a calmness break, which is just taking them out of what's usually a really loud, chaotic environment if people's family gatherings or anything like mine, 
Um, and it's, you know, walking up and down the driveway, going in a room and singing a song together or doing some brain gym activities. And it's that little bit of connection and that little bit of calmness. And it calms their brains down enough that they can go back and handle all of the family holiday chaos a little bit better. At, at family gatherings, my cousins and I, we all take those breaks. So we're like, okay, we have a code word we come up with. And we're like, okay, usually it's pumpernickel for some reason. And then we do, <laughs> we all take like 10 minutes and we go be on our phones, read a book, go outside, and then we can come back together and we're like, okay, we can handle it now. So it's great for everybody. <laughs> you must bring the pumpernickel bread then, pass the pumpernickel. <laughs> we're German, so there's always pumpernickel yeah. bread around. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then the other big thing that helps with predictability and felt safety for our kids is keeping schedules. So as much as possible, have meal times as much the same time as you can, keep bedtime the same as much as possible, um, and keeping those things in the same order and the same time frames as at home helps our kids to feel safe. So they know, okay, I am going to get my meals at this time. No one's forgotten to feed me. Or, you know, do I get to go to bed? Do I have to sleep somewhere else? There's a lot of anxiety around that. So keeping that as, as um, home-like as possible really helps to lower that chaotic behavior and anxiety that we often see in our kids. And that last part is such a simple idea to keep somewhat on schedule because, mm -hmm. but it's just something I think everyone forgets and, and just... Yeah. Realizing that when you, you're thrown off your schedule and your daily routine, it messes with everything. Exactly. <laughs> it happens to us as adults, too. Yes. Yeah. Thanks, Karen. Yeah. Well, it certainly happens as adults. <laughs> so moving on. Okay. So what are some of the holiday triggers for children with RAP? The biggest one is family togetherness. That is really, really scary for our kids because their whole existence is based on survival, which means pushing people away. Um, because of the early experiences our kids have had, they think love is something that is really scary and is going to hurt them because a past parent hurt them, abandoned them, left them, didn't protect them, whatever it is. So love is seen as really scary and family is a lot of love and it's seen as really scary. So when we put our kids into these holiday environments, they're all about love and togetherness and connection and sharing and you know all of that family stuff and it's really hard for our kids so sometimes just that is enough to trigger a lot of those um, chaotic negative push away behaviors our kids have um sometimes especially for our kids who have been through foster care um, holidays can be hard because they're not celebrating christmas with the people they want to be celebrating with or Thanksgiving or any other holiday that comes up. Um, they might be thinking, well, last Christmas or last Thanksgiving, I was with this family and we did this, and now I don't have those people. And I spent this holiday with my birth mom and we did this, and now I don't have that person. So it can be a lot of loss and sadness that comes up for our kids around those holidays. Um, and then, for a lot of our kids, we don't know their trauma history and what happened to them. And there's a lot of trauma that happens around holidays. It's a time of increased stress, a time of financial stress and travel and people getting together. 
and there's often a lot of trauma associated around that as well. So lots of reasons. Unfortunately, holidays are not great for kids who have experienced trauma. Mm-hmm. A lot of those reasons sound like they're triggers for adults as well. So so it's someone yeah. with rad, I'm sure it's amplified that much more. You know? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Karen, you talked about um, living in Canada, kind of a remote area. And we have a lot of listeners that live in rural Minnesota or maybe rural areas um, mm-hmm. throughout the country. So what um, they're familiar with lack of resources and services in their area. So what advice yeah. do you have for those families and how can they reach out to you to get help? Um, advice is sometimes you have to create your own resources. So I always say there's there's a very few good things that came out of COVID. One is a greater understanding of anxiety. And the other one is that so many things are now online that didn't used to be online. I remember um, before COVID, I would run courses on Zoom. Nobody knew what that was. And I'd have to tell them it's like Skype. Right. <laughs> now everybody knows. Um, so I tell families, start your own support group. Once a week, you start with two families or three families that you know and get together on Zoom and connect with each other. Because it's really important to have people who we can say, my child had some really alarming behaviors during the day. And they understand. They're not like, well, you're a bad parent. They're like, that's so hard. I'm sorry you had to deal with that. Um, Therapy is a lot more available over things like Zoom than it used to be. So um, I work with therapists from all over the U.S. And... uh, it's much more accessible now. So families don't necessarily need a therapist where they live, but they can connect with them um, in other places. Uh, And then as far as connecting with me, um, some of my main focuses right now are services online. So we have, um, there's a parenting course that we do usually four times a year. We just started one last week. So we're in the middle of that. Um, And those are nine sessions long. We usually do them over four and a half weeks. And it just covers all of the basics of therapeutic parenting, gives really practical information so parents know how to deal with behaviors that come up, how to do intentional nurturing, how to put the felt safety piece in place, all of that stuff. Um, And then I do a lot of respite provider training. So respite is a vital piece for therapeutic parenting and for our kids healing. Um, So sometimes we have what we call the respite professionals who do this for a career, but the majority of the time it's families that I work with, their family and friends, their local support, who will take the courses so that they can provide resources for these families. So that's really beneficial too for people in rural areas where they don't have access to established resources um, of that sort. Uh, And then I do online consultations. So if people want more specific one-on-one information for their family. And then I am just getting back into traveling to do respite care. So that will be available probably next year. Uh, We'll start back up with that. And I will travel anywhere warm in the winter months. Let me put that out there. (laughs) Maybe not Minnesota then. It's not very warm in Minnesota, no. No. Well, I'm just going to make a pun here and say that sounds super rad. Yeah. Those of you who have the video, if you can see my hoodie, it says kind of rad, but not too rad. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. She's wearing it on her sleeve. <laughs> we do have one last question for you, and it's really important. So you have to think we're going to give you an either or. Okay. Situation. So, okay. Okay. All right. So the surprise holiday question is turkey stuffing or mashed potatoes? Oh, see, I mix mine together. Oh. <laughs> I will have to say stuffing though. If I had to pick, I'd go with stuffing. Okay. Sounds good. And it's All stuffing, right. not dressing. That's maybe controversial too. Very oh. controversial. Yes. <laughs> My sister-in-law is American. It's been a family debate. <laughs> oh, <yes. laughs> yes. All right. Well, thank you so much for being with us today. We've certainly enjoyed our conversation, Karen. Yeah, it was lovely to be able to do this. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. And I just want to make sure, Karen, if people did want to reach out, do we have your contact information or website that they can go to? Um, website is theradishranch.org and then email contact is info at theradishranch.org. Perfect. Yeah. Great. All right. Well, have a lovely holiday and I hope you guys get that, that stuffing versus dressing. Yes. <laughs> it's a yearly <laughs> debate, so we'll see how it goes this Christmas. <laughs> okay. Good luck. Thanks so much, Karen. Thank you. So thank you so much for joining us today for Let's Talk. Please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to our podcast and tune in again soon.